Join me in John 20 as we see another expression of the glory of our Messiah post-resurrection as he appears to Mary and calls her by name. And in calling her by name, it all gets set straight in Mary's life. So too with you, friend. If Jesus calls you by name and calls him, calls you to himself, everything gets set right. All the confusion and chaos and grief is dealt with in your Messiah calling you to himself. It's an astounding and amazing thought. Last week's text, we saw tremendous urgency. Mary Magdalene had to get to the tomb. The first light of day, she was there. She had to care for our Lord's body. Then she arrived and found the tomb already opened and presumably the body gone. And so she ran and in urgency told Peter and John, you must go see. They've taken our Lord's body and Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And as they saw the empty tomb and the grave clothes left behind, John says he believed. It finally clicked that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. There's some more urgency in our text today. Mary is again at the tomb. She's urgent to find the body of our Lord after Peter and John have left. John 20 verse 11 says this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, this is your holy word. We receive it by faith. We believe it to be sent to us from you, recorded by your apostles and preserved by your spirit. And we in this moment, by faith, desire to understand it and to live in light of, the, of its truth. So we ask that you would open 
the eyes of our inner man to see and behold wondrous things from out of your word. That we might glory in Christ. That we might obey our Lord, our resurrected Lord. So Father, would you meet with us to accomplish that for your glory and the building of your church until your son returns. In his name we pray. Amen. As we see Mary aware of the emptiness of the tomb, and then having Jesus reveal himself to her, we see that revelation leads to a commission. Go, take this news to the brethren. We see the same pattern in verses 21 and 23 when he appears to his disciples in what I believe to be the upper room and lets them touch him and affirm that it is Jesus their Lord. He then commissions them. He shows himself to them and then he sends them to tell others about him. This is the pattern of this text. It is the pattern of our Lord to make himself known to those who believe and then to send those who believe on a mission to tell others. It's the compelling reality of the resurrection of Jesus. It sits upon our soul with tremendous urgency. Those who know this Jesus who have seen the resurrected Lord with the eyes of faith to be urgent to tell others. I have been forgiven of my sins. His work is complete and you can be too. You can see and know this Jesus as well. Among all of this urgency, there's a lot of unknowns and confusion in our text, isn't there? Mary comes to the tomb gripped with unanswered questions about the body of Jesus. The disciples themselves, though John walks away believing he's, he's still in process, he doesn't get it all, and they, they meet in that room with a lot of confusion. Even though they get reports from Mary Magdalene and from the other women and from the disciples on the road to Emmaus who come back in Jerusalem, they've heard three different reports, and Jesus appears to Peter also, we're told later in 1 Corinthians 15. So all of this eyewitness account, and they're still at the end of the day sitting there with a lot of unanswered questions. A lot of unknowns. For Mary, this produces inconsolable grief. For the disciples, it produces fear and confusion, chaos and paralyzed, paralyzed waiting. And then the resurrected Jesus shows up and he, he puts everything in its proper place. And beloved, that's what he does. That, that's what the resurrected Jesus does. When he shows up, everything gets set right. Everything gets put where it's supposed to be put. Every question that needs to be answered gets answered. Every grief that we bring to our Savior gets met by His finished work. The scene starts in the early morning hours of Sunday, and it closes in the late evening hours of the same day. It opens with Mary Magdalene weeping and confused, and it ends with the disciples hiding out in fear. It closes with the, the fears lifted and the grief alleviated and the commission given. And again, I press upon you what makes the difference. It is our resurrected Jesus shows up and sets it all right. This text, I see several helpful connections. Connections that, that help us understand spiritual truth and I hope apply it to our own heart. The first connection I see in the text is between ignorance and and grief. Ignorance and grief. We see that right away with Mary Magdalene. She's filled with grief. She lingers at the tomb of, of our Lord, the empty tomb. She's weeping, and that's not, 
Not gentle crying. That's not a little sniffle with a, a nice little tissue or handkerchief dabbing at her eyes. No, she's wailing. She's bemoaning the fact that the tomb is empty and she doesn't know where the body is. Why is she wailing? We, we know what's going on here. We would not be standing there weeping if we were transported back into this moment, would we? Why is she weeping? Because she lacks knowledge. She doesn't know what's true. She doesn't know what's actually happened to her Lord. And that's how she answers the angels when they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? What does she say? They've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. And then that's exactly how she answers the man she supposes to be the gardener when he asks her, woman, why are you weeping? What are you seeking after? She says, listen, if you've taken him away, if the owner of the garden has sent you here to, to remove this criminal's body out of this borrowed tomb and you've put him somewhere, just tell me where and I'll take care of him. I'll, I'll take him off of your hands. And no thought in the grieving Mary of how she's going to do that. But she's just committed to helping and, and to loving her Lord in that way. Just tell me where. As she weeps and mourns this horrific thought. You know, really an empty tomb without a resurrection should cause this kind of weeping, right? That's what Mary thinks is true. It's an empty tomb without a resurrection and it fuels her, her grief. Mary's grieving because she's ignorant. That's the same thing, by the way, that's fueling the disciples' fear later on in the text. In verse 10, John tells us that he and Peter went home to their houses in Jerusalem. The text literally reads, they went to the, back to themselves, back to their own things. They didn't know what else to do, and I can't blame them. I'm not throwing stones at these guys. But what else do you do? The tomb's empty. The body's not there. John believes that Christ is resurrected. Peter's kind of dumbfounded. He doesn't know what to think. So they just go back to their stuff, back to, to home, and try to figure it out. Later in the text, we find them all gathered together in in a secret place, I believe to be the upper room. No text in the gospel actually says that, but I think they've gathered in, in Mary's home, in her upper room, not Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, in her home, in the upper room, the, the mother of Mark. And they're gathered there out of fear. That's how John describes them, right? They're fearful for the Jews. They're, they're convinced that they can stay in hiding and in some way be protected from the Jewish leadership who might now come after them because the body's missing. They're going to seek them out. And so they think they can lock the door and, and keep the Jewish leaders out, which they probably actually can't do. But they certainly can't keep the resurrected Jesus out. He's going to find his way into their midst. But they're fearful and grieving because of ignorance. This is so helpful, I think, for our own grief and addressing our own fear this morning. Mary is, is weeping while standing beside the empty tomb and with the resurrected Jesus at her side. Think about that. She's weeping at the empty tomb with clear evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead. And with Jesus at her side. And she's weeping. Now this is not to be throwing stones at Mary in any way. I'm not maligning her or mocking her. She's actually to be commended for caring so much so to be there at the empty tomb of our Lord. But the truth is that her, her tears are needless in a sense. 
She doesn't need to be crying like this. If only she knew the truths which were right in front of her. If only she could see the empty tomb for what it actually was. If only she could recognize the the man standing before her to not be the gardener, but to be the resurrected Jesus. Then her, her grief would be immediately gone. Faster than a box of donuts in a room full of teenagers. It would, it would be out of there in milliseconds. And, and that's indeed exactly what happens, right? That's exactly what happens when her eyes are open. And by faith she sees that this one is her Lord. Her grief is gone. How many of our tears are similarly shed? How much of our fear is fueled by our own ignorance? And do not mishear me here. The Lord is not casting stones upon your grief. Grief is not all bad. The one text that I always go to to, to think about is grief okay is, is when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and in a matter of minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There's really nothing to sorrow about here. But the overwhelming reality of, of human death in light of sinfulness captures our Lord's heart, and he weeps at the tomb. Grief is not wrong. Do not mishear me. But there is an antidote to our grief, and the antidote to our grief is the truth. The reality of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. The psalmist tells us that our Lord sees our tears and stores them in a bottle. That He looks with a special kindness upon the downcast and the downtrodden. That He is near to the brokenhearted. So do not mishear that mourning is bad. It is not. Grief is, is good, actually. And sometimes, even when we know the truth of the matter, grief is still a a necessary process to walk us through the, the loss of a dream or the grief of a difficult relationship or the death of a loved one, all of that have grief attached to them that even when you know the truth of the matter, you're still going to weep. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But beloved, aren't there other times when, when we hold on to our grief and sit too long in our fears? And aren't those driven by the unknowns? Aren't those fueled by our ignorance or our refusal to believe what we know to be true? Isn't our grief over a situation usually driven by the engine of unanswered questions, much like Mary had in this text? There's an indelible connection between ignorance and grief. And, and what is the answer? The answer is exactly what the angels bring to Mary's heart and what Jesus brings to Mary's heart. It is the gentle and merciful question, woman, why are you weeping? We too need to apply that salve to our own souls. They don't chide her. They don't correct her. They don't tell her to, to get a Kleenex and get it together. Stop your crying, woman. We got to work through this and get on with it. No, they simply mercifully say to her, why are you grieving? What's causing your grief. And then Jesus, as only Jesus could do, brought the truth to bear upon her ignorance and turned her grief immediately to eternal joy. That leads us to the next connection. That's between revelation and gladness. Revelation and gladness. Jesus makes himself known to Mary and then to the disciples. And what's the result for, in both cases? 
what happens to those who are truly followers of Jesus when they see Jesus. They are filled with joy. Overflowing with glad. I mean, maybe the, the most underrated phrase in all of John's Gospel is found in, in verse 20, isn't it? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Here it is. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, that, there's so much wrapped up in that one little phrase. They were overflowing with abundant joy. Take note of how our Lord approaches Mary Magdalene. In her grief, which is fueled by her confusion and her ignorance, He doesn't storm in and scold her. He doesn't abrasively make Himself known to her. He doesn't say to her, woman, I'm right here, stop crying. Why weren't you expecting the resurrection? You're here, but you weren't here with the right heart. You didn't have the right faith. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick. Brother or sister, that, that might be you this morning. You're, you're barely hanging on. Another load on your back, and you're going to snap. It's going to be over for you. You can't take anymore. What is Jesus' approach to you in that moment? Hey, listen, get it together. All right? I've given you everything you need. Figure it out. That's not what he does, is it? Ever. He mercifully comes to you and meets you where you are and graciously, like Mary, asks the question, why are you so sad? And then he speaks her name and everything changes. John doesn't tell us why Mary didn't recognize the resurrected Christ. Was it the tears in her eyes? Was it the angle of the, the sunrise on the horizon? Was it her confusion and grief which clouded her understanding? Was it something else? I don't know. We're not told. There are a few other instances in the gospel record where the resurrected Jesus wasn't known right away. Remember those, right? When he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel, they didn't recognize him. And they talked to him a long time. And it wasn't until he broke the bread with them and, and rejoiced over that. Then, then he opened their eyes and they saw him for who he was and he disappeared. And then later in John 21, we're going to read of when he showed up at the, the, the seashore of Galilee and, and they were fishing and he calls out to them and, and calls and beckons them to come into shore and they don't recognize him. They don't see him for who he is. There, there seems to me, in, in my understanding, something mystical and supernatural happening here. Jesus is keeping them from seeing and understanding who he is. But then in each case, he reveals himself Letting them know who He is. He opens their mind and everything changes. He does that here with Mary by simply speaking her name. Friend, what a, what a moment. It's one thing to rejoice in the fact that you know Jesus. It's entirely another thing to know that Jesus knows you. That He knows you by name and He calls to you and beckons you to Himself. This one simple word from the mouth of Jesus changes everything for Mary. Her, her grief is gone. Her confusion is clear. Now she knows that her Redeemer lives. The tomb is empty, not because someone stole the body, but because Jesus rose from the dead. Now she knows that every promise of the Old Testament about the Messiah is fulfilled in this man. And she has eternal Hope. And so she does what all of us would do. She clings to the Lord. Having lost Him once, she is not about to lose Him again. Likely she clings to His feet like what the 
other women did in Matthew 28. It's an expression of of humble, joy-filled worship, glad adoration, a commitment to, I'm not letting go of you. You left once. You're not going to leave again. She's filled with gladness. We see this in the appearance to the disciples too, don't we? As He makes Himself known to them and reveals Himself to them, they're filled with gladness. Before we get to that, I want to ask you, what's the, what's the delay between verses 18 and 19? Why so long? Verse 18 is early morning hours of Sunday, Resurrection Day. He tells Mary, go tell the disciples that you have seen me and tell them that I'm going to ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary goes and tells them immediately. She's one of several who've reported the news to the disciples. If I'm writing the story, if I'm crafting the script, maybe an hour later, I'm going to show up on scene. Let's get this moving along. The disciples need to know. Well, the other gospel writers actually tell us more of what's happened. They fill in the cracks of our understanding here. They tell us that that the disciples didn't believe the report of the women. That they didn't believe Mary when she came back and said, I've seen Jesus, and he said this. They, they refused, actually Mark says, refused to believe her. So Jesus gives them all day to, I think, work through this. And then he, at the end of the day, near the end of the day, appears to those two distraught, forlorn disciples on their way back to Emmaus, defeated and dejected, all their hopes crushed in a crucified Jesus. As he appears to them, he tells them, unfolds to them the, the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, helps them understand that it all pointed ahead to this moment. And then he opens their eyes to see them, and they return immediately, remember, to Jerusalem, and where do they go? Well, they go to this room that we read about in John 20. And they rush into the, the scene of the disciples, and, and they tell them the whole thing. Here's what happened. And before the disciples have the opportunity to again disbelieve the report, then our Lord shows up. I think what's happening here is the mercy of the Messiah to test the faith of, our, of His disciples. They weren't present at the early morning hours of the empty tomb. They weren't expecting the resurrection. How would they respond when they heard reports from others, especially women who had been to the tomb. This delay was testing their faith after they had had an opportunity to obey. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that the other Gospels tell us that Jesus said through the women to His disciples, go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. And they didn't budge. They, they hunkered down in Jerusalem. They lacked faith and therefore they lacked obedience and they failed the test. But Notice how it is that Jesus approaches them in that moment. So if you're Jesus and you've done all that, and you're going to show up on Sunday night and they're still sitting there, what are you going to say? You've given your kids one job to do, and you went away for three hours to enjoy a dinner with your spouse, and you came home, and not only did they not do that job, but they were just sitting around doing nothing else. What would you say to them? Peace be to you. <laughs> Probably not. Right? That's not what you're going to say. What in the world are you doing? Why have you not done what I told you to do? 
It was not that hard. I gave you one job. You can hear yourself, can't you? What does Jesus do? Beloved, see our glorious Lord. See how merciful he is. He shows up and he says to them, peace be to you. Now, I understand that's like a common greeting in the first century Roman world. It's like, hey, how you doing? It really is. I mean, it's just that common. That's what you say when you see someone in first century Judaism. But Jesus is not just saying, hey, how you doing? You know when you say that and then somebody actually thinks you want to know how they're doing? And they start telling you how they're doing? You're like, oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> well, Jesus actually means it. Peace be to you. And you know why he can say that? Because on the cross, he was able to say, to tell us, die, it is finished. And now he comes back to them after it's all done and he's risen from the grave because it's completely paid for. And he can come and say to them, peace. I bring to you peace. Do you know this gladness that our disciples now know? Do you know this peace? What's the linchpin between their fear in verse 19 and their joy in verse 20? What changes for Mary between her weeping and her rejoicing? It is obviously our resurrected Lord. And I ask you, do you know this peace and this gladness? Have you with the eyes of faith gazed upon this Jesus? Has he revealed himself to you in his word? Have you seen his finished work for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you laid eyes upon him crucified and him buried and him resurrected? Have you heard his voice call you by name? Have you been brought from the shame of your guilt to the joy of peace with God through his son? Maybe, friend, Jesus is calling your name right now through the preaching of his word. Maybe he's pressing upon your soul and he's saying, listen, you need to believe in me. Trust that I am sufficient to save you. And so I say to you, as our Lord says to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You will know no greater gladness no more sure cure for every grief. It's a gladness that will last not just today or tomorrow or a week or a month or a year or a lifetime. It is a gladness that is so great it will last through eternity. Never waning, by the way. Never weakening, but always growing. Only Jesus can give you that kind of gladness. Speaking of gladness, I think it's safe to say that no one knew more gladness on resurrection morning than Mary Magdalene. Maybe that's an overstatement. But as I read her story, I just can't imagine anyone being more thrilled, more joyful over the sight of a resurrected Jesus than, than her. Jesus revealed himself to her first. Now, she won't know that till later when she hears the rest of the stories, but at some point, she's going to piece together, I was the first one? He came to me first at the empty tomb? 
All of the gospel records will record that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene first. This will go down in history as an amazing spectacle of the love of God for Mary. What are you to make of, of this appearing of Jesus first to Mary? Why does he do this? Why her? Why not John? He was the beloved apostle, right? He's the one that's going to write my favorite gospel anyways. Why not to him? Why not Peter? Why not that, that bold spokesman for the Lord? Why not prove it to him first? Why not Pontius Pilate? Why, why not go and prove to Pontius Pilate that I am the truth and the way and the life, and here I stand? Why to Mary Magdalene first? Well, doesn't it show immediately the value and the trust that Jesus places upon Mary, and I would say upon these women, that he then appears to the group of women second? In a first century world where the testimony of a woman was not permitted in a court of law. Jesus entrusts to these women the most important eyewitness account in human history. Get your mind around that. As a, a clear countercultural message to stand for all time, he says, listen, these women can be valued and trusted with the most important news ever to be given certainly raises the value of their bar of value and trust. He also entrusts them to go and tell his disciples. And, and what do they do? They, they, they actually prove that that value and trust was well-placed, don't they? they? They go and tell them. What did the disciples do when they're told what to do after Jesus appeared? Sit around and wait. Jesus rightly entrusted this message to them and asked them to be his spokesmen. They prove themselves trustworthy. So this appearing to Mary first proves that Jesus values and, and trusts her with his most important message. On a side note, I just must say that there are some out there, Rick Warren namely, who's using this text to say that this is proof that women should be preaching in front of the church. That's not at all what this text is saying. There's nothing about that in this text. These women aren't preaching. They're bearing witness. Ladies, every one of you must bear witness of the gospel to those in your life. And God entrusts that message to you. There are clear texts which give the, the order for the church and, and who should fill what role and, and even what gender should fill what role. It's by God's design. And it's for ultimately His glory. So don't read in this text something that isn't there. But don't miss what is there. That Jesus values and trusts Mary Magdalene, with this most important news. Also, what else do we learn? We learn of this strong devotion of Mary that it does put her in a spot to receive more benefit and more blessing from the Lord. I know that's counterintuitive and, and you're, you're bristling at the thought thinking, wait a second, you're saying greater obedience yields greater blessing or whatever. I don't know what you're thinking through, but just think of Mary. No one showed greater devotion to our Lord. No one showed stronger commitment to the Lord. No one evidenced a, a heart of deeper love for Jesus than Mary did. And it put her in the spot on Sunday morning to receive the greatest blessing. To be the first fruits of, of the blessing of the resurrected Jesus. She had been so loved by the Lord that she just couldn't do it any other way. And that devoted love for Jesus put her in the place of greater blessing from Jesus. 
And beloved, not every Christian's devotion is the same. Not every Christian's love for the Lord is of the same quantity and quotient and value. And we can all grow here. And part of the desire to grow here is that we would be more blessed to know the Lord better. To put ourselves in a position like Mary did on resurrection morning to to see Jesus and to be overwhelmed with His glory. What else do we learn from Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene first? We learn that that God chooses the weak and the despised things of the world to confound the worldly wise, doesn't He? Mary, the one from whom you cast out seven demons, she's going to be first? The angels in heaven, when the script's getting written, are probably asking a lot of questions. Are you sure you want it to go that way? You sure that's best? That, That doesn't make a lot of sense. In particular, the world looks upon that story and says, that is ridiculous. But how fitting for an outcast woman to be entrusted with the message of a resurrected Jesus to go then take that message to a ragtag group of common men from Galilee, hunkered down out of fear in an upper room, and tell them, listen, Jesus is alive, I saw him, and he's going to ascend soon, and you're going to see him. Go to Galilee, he'll meet you there. To then have them entrusted with this message to to go out from the upper room and from Jerusalem and take this message of good news for sinners to be saved and rescued from their sin and take it out from Jerusalem into Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world and to turn the world on its head. Who would you pick for that job? Not these guys. Who would you pick for your job? To be an ambassador of Christ in a Christless world. To be a light in the darkness. To be salt in the decay. Who would you pick? Probably not you. Not me, for sure. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. He chooses the foolish things of the world to disturb and upset the wise, the worldly wise. That's what you are. That's what I am. And He does that so that He gets the glory when anything good happens. It's all about Him, and it's all from Him, and it's all to Him. And when God uses us as weak vessels, unworthy servants, as Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, and it does something of eternal value, then none of us can stand up and say, hey man, look what I did. Look at how amazing that was. No, we all get to point to our resurrected Jesus and say, isn't He amazing? Shouldn't He be eternally praised for what He did through people who could never do that on their own? That's what Mary's story teaches us as well. I want you to see also the connection between resurrection and ascension. You've seen the connection between revelation and gladness and ignorance and grief. Now see the connection between resurrection and ascension. Jesus says in verse 17 to Mary, don't cling to me. What he means there is don't hold on to me. Why? He says, I haven't yet ascended to my father and And you have to go tell my disciples that I'm about to to go to my father and their father, to my God and their God. Then in verse 21, when he appears to his disciples and he lets them 
touch him and, and see that it really is him. And, and this is his resurrected body that was crucified and now brought back from the grave. He doesn't let them hold on to him. But he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. In other words, I'm not staying. I've finished my part of the mission. Now I'm leaving. I'm ascending. You see, there's an indelible, a, a baked into the cake connection between resurrection and ascension. Just like the grave could not hold the body of Jesus, neither could the joyful Mary hold on to the resurrected Jesus. He couldn't stay with them. He couldn't hold on any longer. He already told them that that would be the case in chapter 14. He says, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. And I'll come back for you and bring you to be with me where I am. 14.28, he says, I'm going to go away. That I'm going to be with my Father. Again in 16.28, he says, I'm going to, I've come from my Father and now I'm leaving to return to my Father. And there's this urgency as he speaks with Mary. He says simply that you cannot hold on to me. The grave couldn't hold me and neither can you. I have to ascend to the Father. Just like his death necessarily required his burial. Just like his burial necessarily required his resurrection. So does his resurrection necessarily require his ascension. And his ascension necessarily requires his intercession. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 34. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, ascended. Who indeed is interceding for us. See, he's finished the mission. Now he appears before the Father, uttering our names before his righteous Father claiming us as His own, interceding on our behalf and saying, those are mine. So He says to Mary, go tell my disciples that I'm ascending and will not long be with you. See also the connection between revelation and commission. Revelation and commission. Before He ascends and leaves them, He commissions them. This is the fourth connection in the text, that revelation necessarily brings commission. Jesus shows himself to Mary and then to his disciples. And, and what does he immediately say to both of them? You have a job to do. I'm not staying, but you are. And you have an urgent mission. You have to go tell others about me. It should strike you that our Lord's first appearance after His resurrection was to Mary Magdalene and that His first words to her were a word first of, of comfort, Mary, but then His first statement after that was a word of command. So from the comfort of the resurrected Savior who cures all our griefs and takes care of all of our sorrows and answers all of our confusion, we are then commissioned. It should stick out to you that the first thing he says to her is, is go tell. You have a message, a message to pass on. And I'm commissioning you, commissioning you to the work. He does the same thing to the disciples. He, he lets them inspect his body to make sure it's him. And, and just a side note on that. Notice that Jesus never asks us to believe irrationally. 
He doesn't say something is true, and then when it doesn't stand up to reason, or it's a bridge too far, say, you know what, just believe it. I don't mean to say that faith is captive to reason. Faith is captive to revelation. What God has said is true, whether we can fully understand it or not, which many things we cannot. What I mean to say is that everything that God has said is reasonable and rational. And when he said to them, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me, they're going to put me in the grave, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead, he was not speaking in spiritual, weird, mystical terms that somehow they would figure out later. He meant what he said, and he is here to prove that he meant what he said. Just as he said it in all the reality of death, burial, and resurrection. And he lets them inspect it. He says, look, put your hand in my scars and see that I am the one you saw die on that cross. So Jesus says to you, friend, if you withhold your faith because you're not sure it's all true, he says the same thing to you. Test it. Test it. See if it's true. See if this Jesus of Nazareth lived. There's no more historical proof for anything other than the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's more historical record about that than anything else. Test it and see and know that it is true. And when you find out that it's true, believe it and have eternal life. But then notice that after revealing himself and letting them touch him and prove it to be true, he repeats his greeting one more time. He says, peace be with you. In other words, what he's about to say to them is an overflow of that settled peace that they now have with him because of his finished work. And from that relationship of peace, he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And then he breathes on them and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he explains to them, this is the authority you now wield as those who are my apostles with my spirit. You have the authority to forgive sins and to withhold Forgiveness. Now you got to know these are some of the most complicated verses in John's gospel. All right, I'm going to hopefully simplify what I think to be the answer. I have good evidence for the answer, but if you have further questions, we can talk about it later. But what is going on here? But what is what does it mean that he breathed on them and then said, "Receive the Holy Spirit"? What's the point of this? Well, we know there's a, a fuller measure of the Spirit's indwelling upon these men to come, right, in Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, they will receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They will be equipped to speak in languages they did not know and proclaim the glory of the gospel to people who have never heard. So there's a fuller measure yet coming. So this is not the full giving of the Spirit to these men or to His church. But there is obviously some measure of Christ giving to these men His Spirit. It's helpful again to see in the parallel accounts, in Luke's gospel especially, this scene, this very scene is described by Luke as opening the minds of the disciples to understand the Scripture. I think that's what's happening here. The, our Lord, I, He literally breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But then in this event, He opened their mind by His Spirit to understand that everything He had said, every connection He had made to the Old Testament fulfilled in Him was true. And they gained understanding in that moment, and their faith was fueled. This is exactly what Jesus, by the way, had said would happen when 
he ascends and leaves and the Spirit comes, right? He'll teach you all things. He'll remind you of what I've said. He'll guide you into all truth. And so here on Resurrection Sunday evening, I think Jesus is, is giving them that, a measure of that so they can understand and make sense of their resurrected Messiah. But more than that, it's also an acted parable. It's, it's Jesus fleshing out a truth that's going to have greater fulfillment later. It's very similar to what he does, by the way, in John 13 when he washes their feet. Remember, he comes to Peter and he's washing all their feet and Peter says, no, you're not touching me. You should not wash our feet. And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. And Peter rightly says, not just my feet, Lord, but my whole body. That points ahead. The significance of that is not so that Peter can have clean feet before the crucifixion and be a part of Jesus. That's not what's going on there. It's pointing ahead to fuller cleansing. It's a living parable that points ahead to a coming reality. That Christ's shed blood will cleanse Peter and the disciples. That's what's happening here too. Jesus, by visibly, physically breathing on them and saying, receive the Spirit, is pointing ahead to the day of Pentecost when they'll receive the Spirit in full. What do we make of this authority that we hear they now have in verse 23? The Roman Catholic Church would come to this verse among others, but primarily this one, and say to you that this proves that there are some in the church who are in succession to Peter and his authority over the church and his priesthood in the church that they can announce absolution from sin. They only can pronounce when you've been forgiven, and they can also withhold forgiveness in their role as priests in the church. Well, there's a huge problem with that, and that, that's not what this says. It doesn't say that there's a specific group of people in the church who are given that role. More than that, we never see that in the book of Acts, ever. Never once do you see a group of men, leaders of the church, set aside to absolve sins or withhold absolution. Nor are we given any instruction in the epistles, the letters to the churches, about this practice. So if this is going to be a pillar of church practice, you would expect Jesus would say it. It would be evidenced in Acts, in the birth of the church. And then it would be taught on in the rest of the New Testament. It's not. So that's not what this text means most clearly. What Jesus is saying here is that I give you the authority of the gospel to go and preach the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what they do in the book of Acts. They go and they announce that you can be forgiven. And by the way, if you won't believe, you won't be forgiven. Essentially what Jesus is describing, I think, in verse 23, is the authority of the gospel. It's inherent in the message, not in the messengers. And he is affirming to them, you go and preach the forgiveness of sins. I think there's also a hint here, by the way, to church discipline. There's a time in which the church must rise up and say, this person says they're forgiven of their sins, but they're living in ways that show they're still slaves to their sin. We've called them to repent. They refuse to repent. Therefore, we are saying they are not in Christ. And we're announcing and identifying them as such so that they will repent. We're calling them to repentance. This is the message and the authority inherent in the message that you can be forgiven of your sins. The larger point in this connection between revelation and commission is that we are given a message. 
doesn't it strike you of great importance that the first conversation he has with his disciples after rising from the dead is relatively brief and filled with this one commission to go into the world? That he here has just one thing to say? Doesn't that kind of clarify your thoughts about how you're to engage with the world? Isn't that one of the most confusing thoughts about being a Christian? What am I supposed to do in this chaotic world? How am I supposed to engage with so many who hate my God and hate His truth? What is my role? What is my responsibility? Isn't this clarifying? There's other things to say, but this is of primary importance. You are to go and tell. As Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, so He sends His disciples and all who would follow in their train, namely us, into the world to tell the same. Well, how did Jesus get sent into the world? He got sent into the world by the Father to do the will of the Father. He came into the Father, into the world by the Father's command to accomplish the mission of the Father. And Jesus tells us in John 13 that those who receive us receive Him. In other words, we're His representative in His place. So if the, message receive, if the world receives our message, they receive our Lord. Friend, you don't create your own mission. You don't come up with your own message. You don't come up with your own strategy as it relates to the world. The church is not in the dark here about what our role is in relationship to a sin-cursed, devil-dominated world. We have one job in relationship to the world. And it is to tell them to be witnesses to them of a crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and soon returning Jesus. And this is of primary importance from our Lord to all of His disciples. So I ask you, as you think about your life and your job description, why are you here? Jesus left and He left you here. Why? Why not take you with him all at once and just be done with all the mess? Did he leave you here to, to fix the world? To be a prophetic voice to tell the world all the things they're getting wrong and how stupid they are to, to miss such easy facts as what is a woman? Come on, world, figure it out. Is that our job? How did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world not to condemn the world, for the world was condemned already. But He came into the world to save the world. Now we don't come into the world to save the world. We come into the world as His ambassadors to point them to the one who can save them. And beloved, this is our, our high calling in relationship to the world. And so... You ought to have clarity in your role at work, in your neighborhood, in your relationships with relatives, in your political involvement. By all means, be, be salt and light. Stop the decay. But know that the world's going to world. That's what they do. They don't need a condemning voice from the church. They need forgiveness from their sins. And I know a few people around here who have forgiveness from their sins. 
who can say to others, listen, I know how you can be forgiven. And that's all you are. You can do exactly what Mary did. She just went and told what she saw and what she heard. That's all you do. Go tell people what you've seen and what you've heard. I've heard I'm a sinner. I've heard and understood that I deserve eternal condemnation from a righteous God. I've heard and seen that God sent His only Son to live as a perfect sacrifice and lay down that life on the cross of Calvary for my sins. I've seen and heard that He shed His blood for my sins. I've seen and believed that He was He died and was buried and was raised on the third day and overcame the penalty for my sin and my death and my hell. And I believe that He has forgiven me and I have peace with God. And friend, you can too. It's that simple. So friend, we who have seen the resurrected Jesus with the eyes of faith have an indelible connection, an unchanging connection from that revelation to our commission. We are called to go and to tell. May God help us by His grace. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank You for the power of Your Word to answer our griefs and our deepest sorrows and raise us to our highest of hopes, our Lord Jesus. Thank You for calling us by name, making us Your own, leaving us here, and giving us a job. Lord, would you help us to do the job you've called us to do with greater zeal and faithfulness, obedience and effectiveness than we have ever done before. Not for our credit or our glory, because in ourselves we will never do this. But may it, Father, be to your eternal praise. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.